Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. It's one thing to protest a speaker. It's the other to prevent the speaker from expressing their opinion in the first place. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Ezra Klein. I am uh, excited about the show today. So we've got Steven Pinker on the show. Uh, Steven Pinker is the Harvard College Professor of Psychology at Harvard University. And, and he's a very, very famous linguist. And a couple of years ago, he wrote a book uh, that, that was not primarily about linguistics. It, it was a book that changed my mind about some very big things, changed a lot of people's minds about some very big things called The Better Angels of Our Nature. And in that book, he demonstrated there's been an astonishing drop in violence in human society over generations. Going back to, to, to the earliest data we have on human beings, we have become less violent, crazy jerks to each other than we were. And, and it's an argument, if you read that book correctly, I think, that shows, you know what, for all that we hear about things getting worse, for all that modern day civilization seems alarming sometimes, we are living within a story of tremendous progress, a, a story of so much progress that it is sometimes hard for us to keep it in mind, so much progress that, that it almost seems insulting to the problems we have to state it clearly. Uh, he's now brought out a new book called Enlightenment Now. And the new book is a, I would say it's a follow-up to Better Angels of Our Nature. Bill Gates has called it his favorite book of all time, uh, so that is quite a recommendation. And in the new book, what he's really arguing for is what he sees as the preconditions of not just that drop in violence, but but quite a broad range of other societal indicators he, he argues have gotten a lot better. And that is the basic fundamental ideas of the Enlightenment, ideas that Sometimes we take for granted now, like reason, uh, science, um, but 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 he would argue are under attack and under attack both in more explicit and at times in more subtle ways than, than, than people recognize. So we have a lot of discussions on the show where I'm talking to people about how things are, are bad, about how things are getting worse. This is a discussion where I'm talking to someone uh, making the argument things are actually getting a lot better, uh, much better than people recognize. And and he has a, a reason why he thinks we don't see how much better they're getting. So th this is an interesting conversation and and it, it 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 is worth taking this seriously because I can tell you as a member of the media, there is so much negativity bias in what we report on and what we pay attention to that to miss the story of human progress as much as I think there are holes in it, as much as there are things that are not going right is to miss and is to lose gratitude and potentially lose faith in uh, a, a pretty amazing thing that we are living through and that we possibly need to grip a little bit harder and defend a little bit more. So this is a worthwhile conversation. Um, as always, I appreciate your feedback, your guest suggestions, your ideas at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, that is at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. You can check out my other podcast, Weeds, with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. But with that said, here's Steven Pinker. Uh, Steven Pinker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, so let me begin here. Reading the book, I had a question throughout, which is, who is the book arguing with? Who needs this defense of the Enlightenment? Uh, on the one hand, it's arguing against uh, the uh, uh, folks on, on the right who are advocating a uh, return to nationalism, to um, uh, romantic heroism, uh, an abandonment of the uh, idea that uh, humans are equally worthy and that uh, we ought to and can improve everyone's uh, welfare. 
in particular, it's an argument against those who think of uh, the international stage as a an arena of zero-sum competition, uh, where the moral imperative of each nation is to make its own country great, uh, with the expectation that every other country will do the same. Uh, it's uh, an, an argument that uh, we're, we're all human. There, are, there is enormous um, capacity for uh, improving everyone's welfare, for making everyone richer and uh, safer and freer, more peaceful, better off, uh, that we've uh, managed to do it in the past and we should do more of it in the future. There's uh, also a uh, an argument against those on the left who are so cynical about the institutions of, of uh, modernity, of uh, secular liberal democracies, uh, as it sometimes they're sometimes now stigmatized uh, neoliberalism, uh, a um, fear that the uh, country is spiraling into such a uh, dystopia of inequality and racism uh, that uh, we should tear down the institutions and start over on the assumption that uh, anything would be better than uh, what we have leading leading to deepening crisis. But it's also uh, it's also directed against people who may not even realize that there's uh, something that that that's worth defending, namely the uh, what I de- identify as the principles of the Enlightenment. The, um, the idea that knowledge and sympathy can enhance, can and should enhance human flourishing, that we've set up institutions that have uh, achieved some of that progress and uh, we should rededicate ourselves uh, to them. Since it's the, the in, in some ways, enlightenment ideals have, uh, have succeeded and people forget that they're a thing. This is a question I had reading the book, which was interesting to me because there's a, a dimension in which the ideals you're talking about here, and we, and we can get deeper to what those are, have a quality where there's so much the water we swim in, um, the idea of science. I mean, as much as I think the left will argue that people on the right are, are anti-science for a climate change reason or others, I think in general, most people are, are reasonably pro-science uh, as, a, as a broad matter, that it, it, it feels to me that a lot of the arguments we have are arguments we've been having since the Enlightenment and, of course, in other ways before the Enlightenment about about sort of where the margin on these things are, where our sort of natural tendencies as human beings begin to create backlash, where you can push things too far, um, and, and that we are in some ways like not almost conscious so much of how thoroughly we have adopted some of these ideas. And, and even when we begin to argue against them, how much we try to argue against them in their own language. I mean, even the folks you're talking about, say, on the right, when they argue about zero-sum nationalism and they argue that, uh, you know, folks are, are coming in here in hordes and coming over our borders, you know, they, they are arguing in terms of, of cause and effect and economics and, you know, that, that, that there's a kind of natural human tendency towards group. And if you overwhelm that, you get social instability. That, that, that even there, there's a case being made on, you know, grounds of reason and, and empirics. I, I tend to not agree with that case, but 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 it sort of all takes place on on this ground that is enlightenment structured, I think. Yes, some of it is the the uh, the, the water that we swim in uh, that we're unaware of, which is a problem because at the margins and sometimes not even at the margins, uh, many of these enlightenment values do come under attack. In uh, many uh, humanities programs in, in uh, major universities, in many of our magazines of intellectual and literary and cultural criticism, uh, science is, is regularly attacked. It's blamed for... Um, for uh, racism, for uh, the world wars, for for the uh, for the Holocaust, it's considered a uh, to to sap uh, everything that makes life worth living. It's to to uh, um, corrode the, the soul, to um, uh, disen- lead to a disenchantment of our worldview, and uh, you can you can see this in some of the discussions of the place of science in a liberal arts education, where uh, even at my own institution at Harvard, when we reformed the curriculum a few years ago, the uh, original statement coming out of the committee said, well, science, on the one hand, it's uh, it, it's given us more efficient uh, data storage. On the other hand, it's led to, uh, uh, could lead to nuclear war and to uh, uh, institutionalized racism. It was actually quite, quite equivocal about whether uh, understanding the world was better than being ignorant of it. I hear this argument made a, a lot, and I, I went to a very, um, at least for a couple of years, I went to UC Santa Cruz, which is a, a campus far on the left of, of Harvard. 
Oh, but yes. When you, you must have a lot of contact with your colleagues in the liberal arts. And, and when you talk to them, do you think they're really equivocal about science? I mean, do, do you think they really believe that science is maybe good and, and, and maybe bad? Because I hear some of this and, and I feel like I have contact with some of these folks and, and I don't get this impression. I, I do feel there's a very strong and an, an emphasized critique that science and a lot of disciplines are insufficiently reflective about the ways in which only certain perspectives have been represented and the ways in which those create blind spots that are consequential. And, and, and people really push that point hard because they feel it is, is under-noticed and under-responded to. But I feel like I'm always hearing about these liberal arts academicians who, who don't like science, but I, I, I feel like I haven't really run into that many of them, but, but you are much more in this community. I mean, is it really your experience of your colleagues that, that they fit that? I, I don't want to generalize about uh, all my colleagues, and you're right that many don't, but but some do. Uh, and in particular, it is at the margins where I think that an increase in scientific thinking, uh, a confrontation of our biases and psychological weaknesses uh, that uh, where more of a scientific approach is called for, such as in the um, study of, of war and peace, such as in the uh, analysis of uh, criminal justice policies, where so much of our debate and decision-making just come from uh, opinions and impressions and anecdotes, and where uh, a, a, an increase in scientific thinking holds out the promise of a much deeper understanding, but that's precisely where you get uh, pushback. Uh, your, your science is okay when it comes to politicized issues like climate change, where there are good guys and bad guys, and it's okay if you know maybe it, it, it cures my infection and maybe uh, uh, forestalls my Alzheimer's disease. But when it comes to applying scientific mindset to understanding social problems or to deepening our understanding of, uh, of art and music, there you get fierce resistance. Give me some examples. I've had debates with um, several literary lions, including Leon Wieseltier and uh, uh, Luke Menand, over the role of science in, uh, the, the, in the humanities and social sciences. And there's uh, a fierce pushback. An idea that this is that this is scientism, which is considered to be a, a heinous sin. That science has, uh, in fact, an article by uh, Weaseltier that replied to my article, "Science is not your enemy," uh, had the tagline: "Now science is ready to invade the humanities. Don't let it happen." So when I when I read into some of this debate, what I always notice in it is there are spheres of inquiry that people, and here I agree with you, that people want to protect from scientism, as it's sometimes called, right? A feeling that there's an ineffableness into how we appreciate art, that there's something in the human spirit, in the human soul, that that as you try to break it down and quantify it, that you lose something or you misunderstand something. Is there a place where you think that boundary makes sense? Or, or is your argument that there kind of isn't a place where that boundary makes sense and that science is the right way to think about virtually all forms of both human achievement and and, and human appreciation and experience. It, it's not zero-sum. That is, if you bring scientific insight to bear on uh, social problems, on historical problems, on uh, problems in the arts and humanities, it doesn't mean that traditional modes of criticism and erudite analysis uh, have to be uh, obliterated. You're uh, diversifying the tools for understanding something, not uh, not replacing them, and I, I see the the resistance at even bringing scientific insights to bear on uh, social and artistic questions. It, it can never be true that adding insights, adding intellectual tools, uh, makes you less appreciative of of a phenomenon. It, it can only deepen and, and enhance your understanding. When you say social and artistic, can you, you, you mentioned some of the artistic ones, like the, the weasel tear example. When, when you say there's a resistance to science and social phenomena, that seems less intuitive to me. Um, wh what are you thinking of there? Let me give you some concrete examples. Uh, do nonviolent resistance movements achieve their goals? Uh, that is, did uh, Martin Luther King and Mohandas Gandhi just get lucky and tug at the heartstrings of an enlightened Anglo-American democracies, but in general, you've got to use a little bit of violence to get what you want? Or are they effective tactics? Now, if you cherry-pick anecdotes, you can 
argue it either way. You can point to cases where a violent resistance movement was the only thing that could topple a regime and other cases where a, a nonviolent one succeeded. It's only when you take us, uh, adopt a scientific mindset, assemble an entire data set, all the examples that you can, that you can find and count that you arrive at the stunning conclusion that nonviolent resistance movements are two to three times as effective at toppling uh, dictatorships than, uh, than violent ones. This is an analysis by Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan. Um, uh, another example, do peacekeeping forces work? One can pick ex- notorious examples where they did not work, such as in Bosnia in 1995, and conclude, well, they're just, they're just a waste of time. They're a feel-good measure. And here again, as with any statistical phenomenon, you can find some instances where, where it works, some where it doesn't work. It's only when you uh, adopt the mindset of a scientist and say, well, let, let's look at all the cases and see how often they work, that you come to the conclusion that uh, there's an enormously beneficial effect of separating belligerents with peacekeeping forces. Not 100% of the time, but but uh, most of the time. This is an analysis by Virginia Fortna. Uh, and again, it's taking... Uh, questions in history and political science and treating them the way a scientist would, arriving at insights that you could never uh, arrive at if you were calling to mind particular examples. I'm often on on one side of this debate where I, you know, I, I run another podcast or we have a research paper of the week and, you know, we we we, we pour through literature for, for papers very much like the ones you're talking about. Um, one of my best friends is uh, does political science around humanitarian peacekeeping, so I feel like I'm I'm familiar with this research. And what I always notice is not really a resistance to it, but an unfamiliarity with it. So, so what I'm hearing from you is a sense that people do not want to hear that there is evidence out there that say nonviolent resistance is more effective, or evidence out there that peacekeeping forces are effective. And, and that's not been as much my experience. But what I find is that people, one, often aren't aware that there is evidence. Um, often I'm not aware that there is evidence. It, it is a continuing frustration of mine that it is so difficult to search uh, and, and freely access academic work. Um, but, but the second piece of it is that the, often people mistrust the evidence. And, and, and this seems to me to be a place where I think people critique me and often critique me fairly that, you know, we do have these studies, but we have an N of only so many. Um, and it may be the best evidence we have, but maybe the evidence isn't very good. Uh, that, that, that there can be a, given the replicability crises we're seeing in, in, in some professions, given how hard the world often is to study, given how much has changed even in the way we do this kind of political science work that you're talking about here, that the, the pushback I get that I, I sometimes have trouble answering is, yeah, that, that's a study, um, but it does have these flaws. And, you know, most of these studies often come out on the, the more research is needed side. And the sort of tendency among some to like slam a paper down and say, well, hey, this is decided because, you know, we, we've, done, we've run the statistical analysis. Um, you know, some people just don't buy the regression. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes I think they have a point. How, how, do, you, how do you see that? Well, it, no, it's always appropriate to criticize a study, particularly when uh, we are talking about a study as opposed to a meta-analysis or a literature review. Uh, and I think there is a bad habit in a lot of science journalism of writing up a, a single finding rather than waiting to see how the picture uh, looks when uh, a number of studies have been done and uh, the sample size has increased and the replicability concerns have been addressed. But the, the critical comparison, though, is like, is what's the alternative uh, that is, uh, of course, any particular study can be flawed, but that's assuming that the intuitive judgment of an expert is infallible. And t- uh, talk about flaws, talk about non-replicability. You ask a maven and uh, you're going to get much less replicability. You're going to have all of the flaws that cognitive psychologists have identified that human judgment is vulnerable to. 
we had a kind of idea of the enlightened brain, of the enlightened brain, right? That our brains were these sort of reason-seeking machines and we were out there trying to find truth and out there trying to, when we argue, we're trying to find the right answer. And you have a very nice discussion of this in the book around identity protective cognition and motivated reasoning and all the ways in which when we reason and when we read and when we, we, we look at these studies and decide which studies to trust, given how hard it is to have firsthand knowledge about the world, how often we are using all this evidence to reason our ways forward into um, a conclusion that we've already decided we want to reach. And, and what's worse, what's scarier, and you, you, you have some very nice research that I like too from Dan Kahan in there, um, is that this seems to be worse for people who are more highly informed because it gives us more information with which to, to construct the arguments we want. And so the, the real challenge to me when I look at sort of enlightenment ideals is not so much a, a kind of counter-enlightenment ideology, at least in, in a country like America, but a mental hardware we're working with that turns out to be much more fundamentally flawed for this kind of work than we would hope, particularly when the questions under consideration become tribally threatening, become controversial, begin activating parts of our identity um, as opposed to just being sort of abstract to us. And, and I found the, the discussion of this in your book um, depressing. It, it didn't feel to me like we, like even you were able to, to come to an answer on it. So, so how do you think about that, particularly in the realm, I guess, where I'm in, which is politics? Yeah, it's, it's a mistake to think that the Enlightenment uh, philosophers ever claimed that humans were thoroughly rational. Quite the contrary, they were astute cognitive and social psychologists of their day. And one of the reasons that they extolled rationality is precisely because humans left to their own devices aren't uh, all that rational. But clearly, we must be capable of rationality. Otherwise, the claim that, that, that we're irrational could, couldn't have been made in the first place, because what's the benchmark of rationality against which you're comparing the person on the street? And how are you doing the comparison? Uh, should Is what you just said irrational uh, about what how rational humans are. So we always, uh, we, we must have the capability for, for rationality, even to have the discussion that we're having sensibly, as opposed to just having an arm, you know, arm wrestling or, or, or bribing listeners or, or having a beauty contest. The question is, how do we set up the conditions where our inherent biases are minimized and collectively, if not individually, we can arrive at rational conclusions. And we know we must be capable of that because that's how science works. And, and uh, science has uh, not only come up with, with theories that we have every reason to believe are, are, are true, but uh, accomplishments like eradicating smallpox and inventing antibiotics and sending a man to the moon and so on. So the, the capability is there. The, the question is, how do you set up the rules of the game so that each individual's irrationality gets, uh, in the long run, swamped by a kind of collective rationality? And that's where we, we must adopt norms like free speech and open debate and a demand for empirical testing and a demand for logical consistency that you know, none of us by ourselves are, are motivated to apply because we all want to be right. On the other hand, when you throw a bunch of intellectual adversaries together, uh, then there's the, at least the, the potential where one person's rationality can overcome another person's irrationality in, in, in different areas for, for different people. Uh, and the thing about reason is it can always step back and analyze the flaws of reasoning as it's been carried out so far. So the, Daniel Kahan's analysis of uh, identity protective cognition, namely that we're all sports fans when it comes to intellectual debates and we uh, seek information that enhances the fan experience and shows why our team is uh, superior to the other team. Well, now that he's identified it, that is part of our understanding of rationality and its challenges. And we can uh, try to uh, point that out as a new flaw that we were unaware of and, and uh, try to develop workarounds. In, in science, for example, there's a, a one, one idea is adversarial collaboration, where two teams of scientists who are on opposite sides of a controversy sit down and I jointly identify some empirical test that they both agree beforehand would settle the matter. Now, we're not going to see that in politics anytime soon, but once you identify tribalism as a problem, as Kahan has done, at least you can begin to take steps to uh, circumvent it. 
What would you recommend to people who want to try to circumvent it in themselves? Uh, Certainly to recognize in yourself the bad habit of seeking uh, evidence that confirms your beliefs and and, um, dismissing evidence that uh, disconfirms it, of surrounding yourself with people who hold the same opinion, um, of seeing your uh, adversary as evil and stupid as opposed to possibly mistaken. These could be general norms of reasoning in the same way that many of us by now are aware of fallacies like confusing causation with correlation, of reasoning from anecdotes, of um, you know, uh, affirming the consequence if, if um, marijuana users then go on to heroin. If all heroin users start off with marijuana, therefore marijuana makes you a heroin addict. That's the kind of fallacy that was identified long ago that most people are, are aware of in some form. So we have to add identity protective cognition or tribalism as yet another um, tempting fallacy that we ought to be aware of and, and try to minimize. So I find this very difficult, um, and and you know I was actually appreciative. You you mentioned a, an article I wrote in in the piece, uh, or I'm sorry, in the book about how politics makes smart people stupid. But <laughs> yes. one of one of the things that has been very disconcerting to me in the literature has been actually I'll say two of the strains that have been disconcerting to me in the literature. One is that higher information people, um, people who are consuming more information on topics have higher levels of partisan self-deception or tribal self-deception. So that that kind of makes sense once you think about it, right? They're amassing more information. But the other one that I was not expecting, and, and you know, maybe it makes sense in retrospect, but, but it surprised me when I began to read it, is there been a bunch of studies about what happens when you begin getting people to read things they disagree with? So you, you just said, Listen, recognize in yourself that you're going to have the tendency to look around for information that accords to your biases and don't do that, right? You know, if you're a liberal, read more conservative websites. If you're conservative, read more liberal websites. And this strain of research finds that when people do that, they become more set in their beliefs, actually. That what happens is they read these articles with a very critical mind. And so they're sitting there, you know, if you're a liberal, reading this defense of Donald Trump coming up with all the reasons this defense is wrong. And then on the other end of it, they're more convinced they were they were right than ever. And that actually seems like a pretty profound challenge. Well, one of the, the feelings I have when I look at this research sometimes is it has this quality of staring into the abyss, that kind of everything <laughs> yes. can be signaling, right? I, I, the more you know about these things, the harder it is to understand how you get out of like the infinitely recursive loop of, well, maybe I'm just signaling that I'm being fair-minded as opposed to being fair-minded and, and on and on down we go. So, so I want to push you harder on this. Um, I, 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 still don't, I still don't have my plan for becoming an enlightened thinker from Steven Pinker. I'm certainly not making an argument that it's easy or that the that there's there is no challenge. Uh, but the first step in in dealing with a challenge is recognizing that that it exists. Uh, the The alternative is let's just uh, retreat into our our uh, tribalism and um, uh, have contests of demagoguery and um, mutual virtue signaling and mutual demonization. And, uh, um, uh, and maybe, maybe that's the depressing conclusion that, that we can do no matter, better than that. But I think there are, uh, there, there are reasons to think that we can do better. Not that it'll be easy to do better, but that it isn't utterly hopeless. Uh, one of them is that not all issues get politicized. Uh, there isn't a huge debate over whether drunk driving is a good idea, for example, to take a, an example from Dan, Dan Kahan. The va- vast majority uh, of issues, if they aren't adopted as tribal identity badges, uh, people can do something about them. And, and we've succeeded in, uh, as I show in Enlightenment Now, uh, all kinds of measures have worked. We've made uh, plane travel safer and uh, uh, occupational hazards less lethal. We've uh, reduced crime. Uh, we've uh, re- we've reduced war. So something sometimes must be going right. And part of it, it comes from uh, making some issues not identity badges. Uh, that can sometimes be facilitated by finding a spokesman on the uh, opposite side. So in the case of climate change, the, the imperative really is to find some people on the uh, libertarian right who uh, acknowledge the reality of human-made uh, climate change. That would probably do much more good than uh, simply trotting out the latest study of how horrible it'll be if we don't do anything about it. Uh, A second 
workaround is to try to dissociate solutions to a problem from the existence of a problem. So if presentation, say, of a human-made climate change did not insist that the only way of dealing with it is to uh, undo the industrial revolution, abolish capitalism, go back to a simple, abstemious lifestyle, then uh, one would uh, alienate fewer people who don't want to go back to a, an abstemious, primitive lifestyle. Can I push uh, on and, you on that? I, so I read sure. this chapter of your book, and I found that discussion sort of weirdly unfair. Um, I, I think I know a lot of people who fit the the description you gave of climate justice warriors. And I don't know any of them who really are arguing for a return to primitivism. I mean, in fact, they're arguing for solutions very much, you know, you, you have a long discussion in the book of carbon pricing. It, it felt to me a little bit like you were creating an unreasonable left there that you could be sort of the reasonable middle around. But 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 most of the climate folks I know they're very willing to experiment with nuclear energy. They want to do some kind of carbon pricing. They're willing to try almost any sort of argument you can imagine, and it's still not working. Um, and, and there's always this, like, if only they could somehow be magically a little bit more reasonable. But 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 they're trying pretty hard. I mean, they take this stuff pretty seriously. Even the people I think of as sort of the most aggressive in the movement, someone like, say, Bill McKibben, he's not a primitivist. No, and he has uh, softened on on nuclear energy, but there is implacable opposition to to uh, nuclear energy in in much of the uh, in, environmental movement. Uh, and uh, there there are uh, organizations like Greenpeace, National Resources Defense Council, who are just dead set opposed to, to nuclear. There are also uh, people on the left, like Naomi Klein, who are dead set against carbon pricing because it doesn't punish the polluters enough. Uh, the that 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 we sh- that our approach should not be one of uh, bean counting, as she puts it, but rather one of uh, justice and moralization. That it should be our opportunity to dismantle capitalism. Uh, in fact, the people that you identify who believe in a carbon pricing, b uh, expansion of nuclear power, I, I suspect they're a tiny m- minority of the uh, the people concerned with climate. I wish it was true that that most of them took that attitude. But you see all the time that the the problem is our consumerist lifestyle, our demand for economic growth. Uh, And and I have have, uh, quotes and citations of uh, climate activists who uh, believe that the only solution is to roll back the clock. I mean, look at look at uh, Pope uh, the the, uh, the Pope's uh, Pope Francis's encyclical. Um, he didn't call for carbon pricing and nuclear energy. He called for uh, abandoning the false gods of technology and science and progress, and going back to living in har- harmony with nature. Yeah, but I mean, I. I... Take your point on on the Pope, but 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 he was, <laughs> he comes at this from a somewhat different perspective. I would say the most. I mean, but the, the <laughs> previous the previous president of the United States believed in carbon pricing of some sort and was was open to nuclear energy. I mean, uh, this is a place, and and it's not to to argue here by anecdote, but because obviously, like I'm not saying there's no one who fits the description you're saying. Obviously, there there, there are people out there who are much further left, but the the part of that discussion that I found unsatisfying was that. Uh, again, uh, it, within the political discussion, where I am very familiar with the the battle lines on on, on climate change, what I found is that there's an an almost infinite willingness on the people who care about this to compromise. I mean, so so going back a couple of years, I remember the fight where Lindsey Graham, John Kerry, and Joe Lieberman were the sort of last effort to figure out some kind of cap-and-trade plan that could pass the Senate. And Lindsey Graham had just stopped talking about it as anything to do with climate change at all. He was now talking about carbon pollution, and, and, and they, were, they were backing him up in that. I mean, they were willing to go that far, and, and, and it would have gotten signed. And the hard thing is there that there is opposition they were not able to, to overcome. Um, when you say that the problem in this issue is that, you know, if the left would stop saying that you just need to give up a consumerist lifestyle, I, I think the messaging most people hear on this, I mean, I'm not arguing they don't hear give up your SUV. Uh, they do hear that sometimes, although less so now that a lot of the SUVs are hybrid vehicles. But <laughs> right. they, but what, what people are hearing is, you know, really a fight between a side that says with increasing, to be fair, stridency, you know, stop denying climate change. Like this is real. We need to do something about it. And a side that says... Nope, it's a it's and not that you don't not that you deny this in the book, but but it's a Chinese hoax, and so one of the places that that I struggle a lot is that 
there's no magic messaging. Um, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of the work on how to how to message climate change. We were talking about Dan Kahan at Yale Law a couple minutes ago. He's done a ton of work there. And I've seen people try every version of this. Uh, and even on, on, on nuclear energy, even a lot of people I know who are uncomfortable with it. Um, nowadays, it seems more of the problem is that it's not that economical. But, but, but even the ones who are uncomfortable with it, they would take that trade in a second if they could get carbon pricing. They're willing to give up a lot. But it's not a messaging problem. It's uh, It seems at this point to be much more of a tribal identity problem. Well, I, I agree that that is the key problem. And, and part of the solution has to be to um, uh, pry it apart from tribal ad- identity, whether it's the, the, uh, the, the right or, or the, the green left. Um, oh, I think we both agree that, that the, the approach must be pragmatic, doing the math, figuring out what would allow people to uh, enjoy the benefits of, of uh, abundant energy without bringing on the, the possibility of climate disasters. Uh, and I, I guess we don't, we, we, we should, uh, what we need are polling data on uh, how many people really would support carbon pricing and an expansion of, of nuclear and other low carbon energy sources. Because uh, it may be that one or both of us are off the mark as to how popular these views are in, in the left or the right. I could I, I could never be wrong. I'm, my, my identity is too bound <laughs> up in it. <laughs> So I've been very influenced. Uh, I've, I'm a, I should say to lay my cards on the table, I'm nearish to a vegan, mostly vegan, um, and have become very persuaded by a lot of animal suffering arguments in recent years. And something that, that you've all know, a Harari, who, who I believe you quote in the book, um, was the author of Sapiens says has really stuck with me, which is that we are living in this era, which is actually a pretty unusual era in human life, where on the one hand, um, it is not new that we use animals for food and that we raise them for food and that we kill them. But it is new that we have the technology to treat them as badly, to keep them as penned up together as we can. The, the, the back in the day, if you tried to keep the number of chickens that, that we do now together to raise that many of them in the way we do for food, you would have gotten a terrible kind of bird flu. It would have ripped through your flock and that would have been the end of it. But that we, our technology mixed with our sort of ideological willingness to ignore the suffering of what are, what are pretty clearly sentient creatures has allowed for just an extraordinary amount of pain inflicted on the the animals we consume for food in this particular era. And, and this feels to me like a place where our moral imagination and our moral empathy as a society are, are really failing us in, in ways that in the future people are going to look back on us on and, and, and be, be pretty appalled. Well, that, that's quite possible. And uh, I don't think that we're any more callous than our ancestors, but we're certainly much better at bringing into existence large numbers of sentient creatures and and uh, treating them badly, as in fact factory farming. But the the, the life of, uh, of of work animals sometimes chained to a um, a, a, a turbine and forced to. Uh, tread in circles in a dark shed all day to to uh, uh, irrigate a field or to run a mill um, was was pretty horrific too. And and many cultures would uh, roast animals alive. I, I, I don't see a lot of evidence for a great deal more respect for animal interests in the past. Although uh, since our ancestors couldn't do anything in the kind of numbers that we do. There wasn't the equivalent of factory farms, and I agree we, that that uh, factory farming has uh, is now starting to arouse a lot of moral objections. Will probably decline over the decades, and uh, we may even see in the in the fullness of time the uh, uh, technology of, of growing synthetic meat, meat without feet, as it's sometimes called, which would, of course, have environmental benefits as well as the humanitarian benefits. Well, well, this is one of those places where I actually think that the, the technology is going to drive the moral change. I mean, already the difference in what you can get in terms of synthetic meat, uh, plant-based meat for, for now, you know, if you, if you eat Beyond Meat Burgers or Hampton Creek Mayo. I mean, the the the, the simulacra have become really, really good. Um, and so it gets easier. And, you know, there's a good new book by Paul Shapiro called Clean Meat that people should check out that that is looking at some of these, some of these changes. And, and that's where I think there's a kind of interesting interplay, which comes up a lot in your books, between technological advance and, and moral change. Because once it becomes easy to not eat meat that was tortured and, you know, 
killed, it becomes very easy to condemn those who do. And um, and, and and then all of a sudden, you know, societal mores change and, and people look back and like, what the, what the hell were all of you doing? And there have been technological advances that made humanitarian advances easier, such as the mechanization of agriculture that made uh, uh, farms and plantations less dependent on slave labor, such as labor-saving devices in the uh, kitchen that freed women from domestic servitude. Uh, even the, the introduction of the tractor uh, helped reduce child labor, mo- most of which is in agriculture rather than, than factories. And if you didn't have to have your, your teenage son uh, behind a plow, um, instead you had a tractor, then, then the kid could spend more time in school. And, and indeed, I reproduced an ad for tractors in the 19-teens that sold them precisely uh, on that basis, namely, let your son go to school by buying a tractor and uh, and freeing him from from uh, agricultural labor. That, that's one of the pieces of this that I think is going to be fascinating. You have this great quote in the book from Philip Tetlock, who's the who's written all these wonderful books on forecasting, and, and, and you quote him saying, "When the audience of twenty five fifteen looks back on the audience of twenty fifteen, their level of contempt for how we go about judging political debate will be roughly comparable to the level of contempt we have for the 1692 Salem witch trials. And putting <laughs> aside the question of political debate, um, that, that point you make about the tractor ad, where sort of we look back on that and now, you know, the idea that we, we wouldn't send our children to school seems, can seem ridiculous to people, can seem almost like a cruelty. When you look around, um, I, I've mentioned the way we treat animals is one of these. When you look around, what do you think people in 100 years or 200 years are going to judge us harshly for? What, what, what are the practices that you think rest on a fragile moral ground that might change dramatically in the coming century or two? Uh, certainly the, the treatment of animals would be an obvious example. And indeed, Peter Singer, who wrote uh, a wonderful book called The Expanding Circle on how over the course of history, our innate sense of empathy uh, was pushed outward from uh, just sympathizing with our our blood relatives and our uh, clan to the the, the city-state, the nation, the uh, ethnic group, and and eventually to all of humanity. And not coincidentally, he wrote the book uh, Animal Liberation, which argued that the next logical step would be to expand it to other sentient uh, animals. So that that would certainly be one. The um, degree of uh, incarceration that we now have, that there must be methods of deterring or incapacitating people from committing crimes that are more humane than locking them up for decades. A war probably uh, will will go the way of uh, slave auctions and bear baiting and dueling as a, an absurd custom that uh, people practiced for millennia before realizing uh, once and for all how absurd it was. Can I get you to talk more about that? Yeah. Because this is something that has really influenced me from your previous book, and and, I, and it's threaded through this one too. But But I think it's hard for us here. I think that our society even now has a concept of war as a mistake. And there is a, and war is a tragedy even when it is necessary. And something I think you do a really nice job showing is the way war was much more of an ideology. War was a space of honor that, that, that you you hoped to die in battle because to not die in battle was to, to, to die a waste to death. The, the way the ideology, the way we think of war has changed, that, that was something I had not really understood. And it, and it seems very profound. It is a profound change uh, in in two ways. One of them is that war was cons- used to be considered a perfectly legitimate move in the game of nation states. As the, the famous definition had it, it was the continuation of policy by other means. And you'd have countries waging war for, uh, for, for frivolous reasons with huge consequences, including in the case of the United States, the annexation of uh, Texas, California, Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, uh, in a war over unpaid debts. That, that's what, how, why the United States felt uh, entitled to invade what was then Mexico. Uh, and the, the legal basis of relations between states now rules that out. You, you, you can't invade another country because they just annoy you or haven't repaid a debt or you have some other score to settle. Uh, war is, is permitted only in the case of self-defense or with the approval of the Security Council. Not, not a principle that's uh, respected 
all of the time, but just as no law is respected all the time, laws against murder, laws against parking in handicapped spaces aren't uh, respected all the time. But the fact that the law exists does have something of a, of a deterrent effect. But the other change in our mindset towards war is uh, whether it's an intrinsically uh, virtuous activity. And, and as you pointed out, it's shocking to our sensibilities today to see how war was praised as a noble and glorious institution pretty much up until World War I. But you saw great artists and uh, intellectuals arguing that uh, war was manly and spiritual and heroic and thrilling and holy, and that uh, peace was decadent and selfish and uh, effeminate and would lead to a, a meaningless bovine existence. Uh, that, that's a profound change, and the, the carnage of World War I uh, was the, uh, the, 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 the uh, tipping point. I want to make a hard turn in our discussion now to talk about something else I've wanted to, 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 to bring up. So you have written about, spoken uh, about quite a bit, political correctness on campus. And this is something that I have been struggling as it has come more and more into the news and become more and more of a hot topic in discussion. And as I mentioned earlier, I went to, to UC Santa Cruz for two years and, and then to UCLA for one. And I think sometimes about the value, the kind of gift it was to be able to be on campus at a time when it wasn't easy for dumb things that we all did on campus to become national topics. I, I feel like there's a part of this that is, there's this scrutiny and things get, you know, they go up into social media, then they get picked up by national ideologically aligned websites. And then all of a sudden they're, 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 they're part of this big narrative. And, and so I wanted to get your sense of this because you, you spend a lot of time thinking about very big picture historical trends. And you also clearly have a, a deep concern about this. Why should I care? Why, why make the case to me that what is happening on some of these campuses where there are protests on this or that speaker, that, 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 that it is meaningful, that it isn't just something that's been around for a long time. I mean, there were riots on Berkeley in the 70s, you know, that, that it isn't such something that has been around a long time, but now in a more social and nationalized media sphere, we're hearing about it more. So there's this kind of availability bias where it's now like an epidemic as opposed to just something that's happening, you know, in isolated ways on different college campuses. You're right that it has been around for a while, and I distinctly remember as a college freshman in the 1970s, uh, a shouting match between uh, a guy at the table of the Student Marxist-Leninist uh, Association and uh, um, someone else shouting back and forth and uh, the Marxist students saying, fascists don't have the right to speak. Uh, and there's a, a long uh, trail of protests and deplatforming of people like E.O. Wilson uh, when he published the book Sociobiology, Richard Herrnstein when he ha after he had an article in uh, Atlantic magazine on uh, IQ and social outcomes, uh, often misinterpreted as uh, being about race, even though race was not mentioned in the article. Um, but sure, this this does go back. And uh, I think, well, again, we, we're, we're probably... Uh, talking through our hats and speculating over whether it's worse or better with, in the absence of, of uh, data, uh, I suspect that it has gotten worse in the last uh, five years or so. Um, but but I'm, I'm not sure. Why should we care? Well, one of them is if we want to understand uh, our country and the world and, and policies, we just we need to have all hypotheses on the table so we can see which ones are, are true and which ones are false. None of us is uh, omniscient. Uh, none of us is infallible. In general, the the truth is hard to to get at, and unless uh, we examine all possibilities open mindedly, we're almost certainly to to uh, be in error. Um, also, if uh, people are intimidated out of expressing unconventional hypotheses, it leads to a backlash in which, uh, rather than seeking a nuanced, reasonable position, people will lurch to the opposite extreme. And uh, for people who, on campus who feel that there is a, a suffocating 
orthodoxy from the hard left, they'll say, well, to hell with this. I may as well join the, uh, the alt-right. I may as well join the, the uh, white supremacist movements or the, uh, the, the neo-fascist movements. Uh, at least they're not going to um, deny that, that, that uh, there are some, some obvious facts, such as that men and women aren't indistinguishable in every aspect. And so they lurch from one extreme to another. And uh, we get the, the kind of backlash that has led to the rise of deplorable movements that, that had some role in the election of, of Donald Trump. Uh, so it's uh, no good can come from a, a kind of uh, quasi-religious orthodoxy that makes certain people into heretics who must be shamed and disgraced and punished and, and sometimes physically assaulted for expressing uh, heterodox beliefs. And again, we know just from the history of ideas, a lot of beliefs that we consider to be unexceptionable today were radical in their time. And uh, we have to thank the, the the people and the forums that allowed those opinions to be expressed. It wasn't so long ago that the idea of gay marriage was considered a, a, a shocking possibility, one that would lead to the unraveling of the, the, the fabric of American society. But but so that's I think if I could if I could push here a little bit because this is somewhere where I'm unsettled to be honest with you and because I see both sides of this but but gay marriage is a good example of this I hear the argument people make here and it can sometimes frame the advance of social progress the advance of social equality as this thing that just happened through Socratic debate but gay marriage was a war gay marriage was social activism gay marriage um, was huge protests of speakers. Gay marriage was people, um, this was uh, in the AIDS fight, which was a, in some ways a precursor to it, but, you know, was covering um, the the homes of, of legislators and condoms that sometimes I hear the way this is framed. And on the one hand, I'm, I'm pro-free speech. I'm, I'm not for no platforming speakers. I'm certainly not for violence around these questions. On the other hand, I sometimes hear what people are saying. And it's almost as if they're saying that for there to be backlash, for there to be protests, for there to be anger, for there to be opposition to certain kinds of ideas is somehow a, a, a violation of speech or a violation of the pathways that have brought us progress when what social progress we have in this country has often been very, very hard won. And it's it, sometimes it's hard for me to say, looking at, at college campuses and, and, and looking at what's going on, I, I sometimes see things that are clearly over the line, but I also sometimes see people who do not like that folks are trying to change the boundary of what is considered polite or or decent to say. But fights over those boundaries have always been part of of American life, and 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 I think have have been a have been a productive part of American life. But they're always unpleasant to be on the wrong side of, right? They're always unhurtful. They're always. It, 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 it's always conflictual. And, and I sometimes hear people wanting to t- draining our history of its conflict in a way that, that seems very strange to me. There will always be verbal conflict, but in a lot of the advances that you mentioned, there was pretty much zero violence. I mean, there was no terrorist movement in favor of gay marriage. But are we talking about terrorism on, on campuses now? Uh, no, but we, well, we are talking about uh, intimidation and violence, Yeah. Uh, in the, say the case of of say Heather McDonald when she spoke at uh, Claremont McKenna, and there were uh, when we talked about Charles Murray at Middlebury College where the professor who invited him was was assaulted. So I mean it's not terrorism, but it certainly is violence. And in the case of of uh, gay marriage, I don't remember anyone being deplatformed. The the astonishing success of the uh, astonishingly rapid success of the gay marriage movement, I think, in part, was a matter of, uh, of of debate and persuasion. It's really when you're forced to defend a position that gay people should not have rights, it's really hard to muster an argument, and it, it very quickly collapses of, of absurdity. And a lot of in a lot of the moral, the easiest moral advances, the ones that were achieved without warfare or violence, are often cases where people sort of shrug their shoulders and they say, you know, if uh, if no one gets hurt, then it can't be wrong. Uh, a kind of utilitarian uh, argument that once it's made uh, is, is hard to argue against. Uh, and there are, I think there are cases where the shutting down of particular opinions can lead to, to har- harmful consequences. In the case of, let, let's say, let's take uh, Heather McDonald and her argument that much of the uh, protest uh, against policing uh, 
uh, inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, led to a large increase in the homicide rate whose victims were disproportionately African-American. Now, maybe she's wrong. Maybe the uh, sudden reversal of the declining uh, homicide rate uh, after 2014 had nothing to do with the anti-police protests. But still, this is it's certainly a hypothesis that we should look at if we don't want violence to spin out of control in uh, in, in African American neighborhoods to the to the harm of of uh, African American uh, men and and uh, and children. Now, uh, if you can't have the debate, then. Uh, you can suffer consequences such as the crime rate going out of control because you you don't understand what's happening. And if certain opinions are just invitations to be uh, heckled, shouted down, called a racist, then we're never going to understand how to uh, improve the state of our society, uh, of all people in society. So how do you think about the difference between between protest and and shutting down debate? Because look, I'm I'm in agreement. I have... We have, for one thing, on the on the thesis you're talking about with Heather McDonald, we have done a lot of our, our, our reporter, Herman Lopez, who does criminology, um, has looked at that in, in, in some detail. So I am all for looking at these questions, and, and, and we don't have a disagreement on that. But violence against any speaker, 100% with you. What I do wonder about is that I, I hear a lot of these things, and, and they seem to be in part about protest. Um, they seem to be in part about the idea that everything should be a debate and that the the idea that maybe some kinds of ideas are really hurtful. Some ways we talk about folks who are gay or transsexual or um, African-American or whatever it might be, that there should, like we we have changed the boundaries on that over time and, and, and with difficulty. I mean, I think gay marriage among these movements was quite peaceful, but certainly civil rights was not. Um, now, it was a very peaceful um, protest movement, but but what happened in, in, in reaction was not. And if you go back to, to slavery, obviously it was not. So this stuff takes a lot. And I, I think the thing that I am uncomfortable with in this debate, and, and this is part of trying to think through what this would look like to somebody who isn't me and doesn't have my advantages and isn't a white guy who you know grew up in, a, in, a, in reasonably easy circumstances, these spaces do feel more hostile to folks. And they are trying to change how it is okay to talk about them, how it is okay to treat them, what, what, what is okay to be said. And the, the hard thing I find when trying to evaluate this, not, not, in the, not in the really extreme cases of violence, but in the cases of protest or in the cases of saying, hey, I don't want that person to be my commencement speaker. I, I paid money to go to this college. Like I'm in some ways a customer here. I, I, I want to protest that. And I, I just, the, the part of this where I have a lot of um, un, unsettledness, as I, as I said it before, is that I sometimes, what I see people doing is using the extreme examples, examples say of violence, to try to rule protest and, and activism out of bounds. And those, I think, have been very important parts of speech in this country. And those, I think, have been important parts of how things... It's not that we've just moved forward through debate. We've also moved forward through through activism. And, and I do see that history get, get lost in that. I even kind of hear that history get lost in the way you describe gay marriage. I don't agree that that kind of fell on just sort of a... Is a peaceful, easy, utilitarian argument. I mean, there, there was a lot of pushing behind that. And so how do you draw that boundary? What, 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 what do you think it is okay for people to do when a speaker is coming and they, they want to try to push the boundaries and say, you know what, that's actually not the kind of thing that we need to spend our time um, debating? Or is your view that there's just nothing that fits into that and, and, and sort of there isn't anything, there isn't a space for activism to be pushing when something is framed as a debate, when something is framed as a lecture, when something is framed as an exchange of ideas? Well, uh, certainly uh, um, activism has been uh, indispensable in, in some kinds of change. And activism, especially when it's the expression of opinions, when it's the uh, arguments against contrary opinions, is the way progress happens. Uh, but the, the line comes when opposing viewpoints are repressed or silenced. That is, it's one thing to protest a speaker, it's the other to prevent the speaker from expressing their opinion in the first place, drowning them out, uh, the so-called heckler's veto. Uh, and it is unwise, uh, if, if not necessarily illegal, to prevent people from, with contrary points of view from 
having their opinions expressed, especially if they have met the criteria for intellectual seriousness, if they're scholars, if they have uh, if they have positions of responsibility, if they themselves have mustered arguments for their positions, then it is essential to have the mindset that they can be criticized, they can be analyzed, uh, but that one ought to know what their arguments are. Because the alternative is to have confidence in one's own infallibility, in one's own omniscience, and and, uh, to assume that because I have a feeling of righteousness, I don't need to hear challenges to my own position. That can only lead to uh, to, to error and and uh, uh, and often to deplorable uh, consequences. Uh, I mean that that's what we see in, in totalitarian movements. That's what we saw in uh, witchcraft accusations, in um, atrocities throughout uh, history when people were unwilling to entertain hypotheses that differed from their cherished beliefs. Something that is a is a related topic to this, which comes in a little bit in the book, is that there throughout the book there's a bit of a critique, I would say, of how modern education curriculums are designed, about what we are teaching people about, about where we are taking them. If you were designing a high school or a college curriculum, how, how would you change it? What do you think we're getting wrong in the way we teach children to think? Uh, um, I, I think there has been a uh, retreat from uh, a defense of many of the institutions of modernity that we take for granted. This ties back to the opening of our conversation. But what is is the rationale for democracy? Why do we have checks and balances? Why do we have uh, a popular vote? Why do we have trial by jury and a presumption of innocence? And the constitutional prohibition against unreasonable, uh, against uh, search and seizure, this kind of elementary civics that was once uh, a, a mainstream part of American education um, has given way to other topics and other concerns. And I get the sense that a lot of people are ill-equipped to explain why we have the institutions of democracy and the rule of law. And, and so if we did if we did more civics, would would that be sufficient? Or do you think that we need a... One of the things that I felt I was reading into in, into your piece was that you felt that we needed more meta rationality within our, our our work. That that what school should teach you to do isn't just teach you knowledge, and not even just teach you. I think in the the sort of critical thinking idea of how to think, but teach you what is probably wrong with the way you think. That it should be talking to you about cognitive biases, talking to you about. Um, how to apply these sorts of ideas. And, and within that, it felt to me that there was a sort of idea that what we needed was a, a kind of education that was um, sort of different than the information-based education, than the knowledge-based education, and was more a kind of mental skills education. Is, is that me reading, reading too much into the, into the text? Uh, no, I, I do think that a, uh, an awareness of cognitive biases should be part of the, the conventional wisdom of uh, literate society and, and part of the knowledge of, of every thoughtful person. Um, so, and that teaching statistical intuition, uh, an ability to spot and uh, identify one's own cognitive biases should, should be woven into our educational system at every level. Now, whether that should come at the expense of factual knowledge is a tough question. There there are only so many hours in the day, and uh, the the great temptation in proposing educational reform, if you're not actually an educator, is it's easy to pile on all of the the things that, uh, that that would be good things for students to have. Oh, they should also learn foreign languages and there should be, you know, more math and there should be more music and don't forget scientific literacy and uh, what about grammar and uh, and written expression. Uh, how, how you manage the trade-offs of what ought to be prioritized, given that there are so many hours in the day, is a, uh, is a problem that, that's beyond me. But I would certainly push for some presence of awareness of cognitive biases uh, and, and workarounds for them. 
That's a good bridge to, to the question I was used to end the podcast, which are, what are three books that you would recommend everyone reads? Everyone. Uh, let's see. Or just the, the listeners of this, this podcast, maybe. Uh, okay, yes. There's a, a book coming out uh, in a couple of weeks by the late Hans Rosling and his son, Ola, and daughter-in-law, Anna, called Factfulness, which is a, a short and lighthearted book on the improving state of the world, which is often easy to miss in the clamor of the the, the screaming headlines, uh, with a shout out to all of the ways in which we can be misled by a combination of our cognitive biases and uh, some some journalistic bad habits. So uh, that would that would that would be out there for people who are who want a really deep dive into the forces behind um, enlightenment and and progress. David Deutsch's The Beginning of Infinity, I found utterly mind-expanding. Stuart Brand's Whole Earth Discipline uh, is a a book that can change one's mind about the environment. Stuart Brand was famous to children of the 70s for producing the Whole Earth Catalog, which is kind of an internet on paper, uh, famous also for its stunning image uh, of uh, the Earth rising above the moon's surface, which is sometimes credited for spreading planetary consciousness. Uh, and Brand advocates a uh, what he calls eco-modernism or eco-pragmatism, uh, an approach to the environment that uh, does not seek to turn back the clock to a mythical harmony with nature, but rather uh, tries to identify ways of maximizing human well-being while minimizing the harm to the environment. Those, those are three, and uh, I bet if I had another few seconds, I could come up with a, another half dozen. If you want to, if you want to add one more, go for it. Sure. There's a, a book that whose original title was The Great Big Book of Horrible Things, and it was republished under the title Atrocities by Matthew White. <laughs> and it has the 100 worst things that people have ever done to one another with estimates of their death tolls. And this is not only a great way to brush up your history, but it's a reminder of the tremendous cruelty and stupidity that our, our species is capable of. And it's a reminder of uh, how, how far we've con- come. Done with a, a kind of light touch, which you wouldn't expect in a uh, compendium of atrocities, but one that highlights the way that so much conventional history ignores the human cost of the, the great events of history, the, the, the Napoleonic Wars, the... Um, revolutions and uh, battles of the past. And it really changes your vision of human history. Some some good bedtime reading there. It actually is, surprisingly enough. Stephen Pinker, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you to Stephen Pinker for being here. Uh, you should check out his book, Enlightenment Now. Thank you to my producer, Bird Pinkerton. You guys are Clown Shows, a Vox Media Podcast Network production, and we will be back next week. 